The Mystical Underground and Rob McGregor present an audio production of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Central America. The Maya built observatories in many of their cities and aligned them their important buildings with the movement of celestial bodies. The three temples at Oxitan mark the sun's rising position at summer solstice, the two equinoxes, and the winter solstice. The caracol at Chichen Itza is aligned with the appearance of Pleiades and Venus. Impressive, yes, yet Kingston always believed there was an undiscovered temple that would outshine all of the others. From a lecture by Dr. Indiana Jones, Fall, 1938. Seven, into the jungle. All Indy could see out the window of the twin-engine cargo plane was mile after mile of endless forest, but the pilot was dipping low, just a couple hundred feet above the canopy, then a hundred feet, and still descending. Rory, Panamanian of Dutch, Spanish descent wore a leather cap and goggles above his handlebar mustache. Indian Archie had quickly learned that Rory took great joy in frightening his passengers with acrobatic moves, such as making loops just above the treetops. Indy moved forward and tapped him on the shoulder. What's going on now? He shouted over the roar of the engine. Out of gas, he yelled. Sit down and get ready. For what? Indy yelled back. A moment later, a grass landing strip appeared, carved out of the jungle. The pilot laughed as the plane touched down and taxied to a stop 50 feet short of the jungle. Just kidding. Good luck, muchachos. Thank you for the scary flight, Rory Archie said, tapping his chest as he and Indy got out. Will someone drive us to town? Mr. Tan, and Kano, you have to pick yourself up. You are at the most remote town in all of Panama. There are no roads here, only jungle and river. We're roughing it from here, Archie, Indy said. But you won't be lonely. There are a lot of animals to keep you company and a few people who act like animals. The pilot laughed again. You come with us? Archie asked as he and Indy took out, took out their backpacks. No, I'm going right back to the capital. However, I'll be here tomorrow afternoon with supplies for the general store. You've decided you've had enough of Canon in the jungle. I can take you out. Otherwise, I'll come back once a week. Just leave your name with the bartender. Which bar, which tender? Archie asked. Oh, there's only one of each now. It's a small town, getting smaller too, as the jungle gets bigger. What about transportation to the jungle? Indy asked. There's a bush pilot in Canon with a seaplane, an American who worked on the canal. Good. That'll save time, Indy said. He's a drunk, though, so he might not be available, if you know what I mean. 
The alternative is to take a steamer down the river. It might be safer, Rory advised. With that, he taxied to the end of the runway, turned the plane in the opposite direction, and picked up speed. Seconds later, he was airborne and streaking into the distance. By the time they found the trail to town, they could barely hear the engine. I hope this wasn't a mistake, Archie said. And he looked back at the airstrip and spotted a jaguar ambling down the center of the grass strip. And now I don't think so. You're right, Archie nodded. We didn't have any choice. We're doing it for Professor Kingston, or in his memory, or something. He sounded as if he were trying to convince himself that he should be here, Indy thought. But he wasn't doing a very good job. The jungle was thick and high, verdant and humid. The green world seemed to close in around them the further they moved from the landing strip. Howler monkeys chattered in the canopy. A blue and yellow macaw soared overhead, and a pair of toucans, their beaks posing as bananas, stared down at them. Indy kept an eye on the branches overhead for snakes, but was relieved that he didn't see any dangling serpents. Archie adjusted his backpack, tugged on the brim of his hat, wiped the sweat from his forehead. It's all very exotic, but it's it'll be nice to get to town. Indy froze, held up a hand. Do you hear that? The monkeys and birds were silent now, and within that silence he heard a deep rumbling, like distant thunder moving their way. Indy dropped to one knee and placed a hand on the ground. The earth vibrated under his fingers. Maybe it's a trick, a truck coming to get us, Archie suggested. I don't think so. The rum rumbling grew louder as the earth shook. What is it? Archie shouted. Indy took one look, grabbed Archie's arm and plunged into the jungle. They no sooner left the trail when a drove of peccary, dozens of them thundered by. Oh, it was just some cute little pigs, Archie said, brushing himself off as he stepped back on the trail. Not so cute, Indy replied. They would have gored us with their horns, stomped all over us, then chewed off our faces. They're vicious little bastards. I can't wait to get to town, Archie said. I can deal better with two-legged bastards. Maggie O'Malley studied her cards, then laid down her bet. Two of the men dropped out. The other one met her bet and let her know that he didn't care for her winning ways. We don't get many ladies playing poker with us in this place, but I'll take your money and whatever else you got to offer. The grizzled gold prospector met her bet and raised it. He grinned across the table, revealing a gaping hole where his front teeth should be. I'll just settle for your bloody money, you miserable git, Maggie answered, then raised the bet again. If I were you, I'd quit now while you've got something left. And if you ever find any gold in the streams, you might consider saving some for a bloody dentist so you, he can make you a few new teeth. The prospector scowled at her from behind his greasy cards, then leaned over and spat on the sawdust-covered floor. The patrons not only spit, but urinated on the sawdust. The proprietor swept it up and replaced it daily, treating his customers like horses, his bar like a stable, Maggie thought. She's very funny, that one, missing teeth muttered. She's also very good, chimed in a man from the bar. Maggie glanced over at him, an American, fairly good-looking, with all his teeth and a whip on his hip. Another country heard from. Why don't you come join us, hombre? We could use some fresh blood in this game. 
The American and, a, and an older Chinese man with an eye patch had walked into the bar a few minutes ago. I might have used up my luck already escaping some wild pigs out on the trail. She knew about the peccary problem, and no one left. The pigs were no joke, especially when they ran in a pack right through town. Let's finish this hand, missing teeth complained. I'd call your bluff, lady. Maggie started to lay down cards, but one of them slipped to the floor next to her camera bag. She leaned over, scooped it up, and turned up her hand. Aces and ace, partner. Missing Teeth threw his cards on the table and bolted to his feet. Did you see that? The puta is cheating. Maggie leaped to her feet. I am not cheating. You're a lousy loser and stop calling me names. She grabbed her bag, expecting trouble, just as Whip Guy entered the fray. I saw the whole thing. She dropped her card and picked it up. She's not cheating, so apologize to the lady. Hell no. I'm taking my money back. I don't play with cheats. With that, he upended the table and threw a punch at Whip Guy, who pulled his head back and caught missing teeth by the wrist. Then the other players leaped in and pulled Whip Guy away. Missing teeth stalked up to her. You're not cheating me and getting away with it. He lunged for her bag, but she clubbed him on the back of his head with a leaded pipe. He collapsed to the floor, but someone else rushed towards her. She spun around and struck Whip Guy on the side of the head. I was just coming over to... He dropped to his knees and fell forward into the sawdust. Whoops, she murmured. Sorry about that. Sunlight slipped into her room through the cracks in the walls, the only indication that it was morning. The shabby room didn't have any windows, probably a good thing since there wasn't any paint on the wood plank walls. The mattress was thin, not particularly clean, and smelled, and the springs poked into her back all night. She would have been happier sleeping in her hammock between a couple of trees. Maggie was ready to get out of this boarding house and this one-horse, one-road-to-nowhere town, especially after her po poker game last night. She picked up her backpack with her camera gear inside, slung it over her shoulder, and walked into the hallway. She descended the creaky stairs, stepped out into the morning, and headed for the dock. She passed the bar where a few minutes ago she'd eaten breakfast an order of runny scrambled eggs, bread, and coffee. Hardly the stuff of gracious dining, but all things considered, she probably should consider herself fortunate to find breakfast at all. Fortunately, the bar remained empty of gamblers and rummies. She didn't need any confrontations at this hour. Actually, there was one man she wouldn't mind seeing again, the friendly guy that she'd KO'd, at least to apologize to him. Then again, she didn't need any distractions, and he looked to her like a major one in the making. Best to get on her way. She had work to do. As she walked a quarter mile to the river, she thought about how far she'd come since her childhood in Dublin. The only girl among six children, Margaret Grace O'Malley, learned how to hold her own with the boys. As she grew up, she was determined to escape a dead-end life marooned in poverty. At 15, she took a job as an au pair for an American diplomat and ended up traveling the globe with the ambassador and his family. She still remembered the day she was given a Kodak Brownie camera to record the activities of her young charges. Besides taking photos of the children, she began documenting the people and places they visited. Encouraged by the ambassador and his wife, Maggie built a portfolio of her 
photojournalistic work that was surprisingly accomplished. She captured the everyday life in Egypt, Africa, and the Far East. In 1930, after the family moved back to the States, the ambassador made some introductions and the 25-year-old photojournalist landed an internship in New York. Over the next few years, she made a name for herself as a worldly and fearless photographer. In 1936, she became one of the first photojournalists to cover the Spanish Civil War. During that time, she got a close look at the Third Reich in action and made up her mind about Nazis. When the opportunity to do something about it came her way, she decided to act. Now, she was about to head downriver to photograph the reclusive Simar before their way of life was swallowed by modern civilization. She was also following up on recent visits to the jungle by Nazis. The steamer awaited her arrival, but the captain was talking with a couple of men. When the captain motioned toward her, they turned and she recognized Whip Guy and Eyepatch. She had a feeling they were going to be trouble. They were probably trying to outbid her for the use of the steamer. And what was their connection, if any, with the Nazis? The traps, tramp steamer was tied to the dock and ready to head down the river, but it was already booked. Disappointed, Indy turned to the bearded boat pilot. Are you sure there's no other boats? It was hard to believe that thousands of people used to live in this remote jungle town, but that was 50 years ago during the gold rush. Now the boom was a faint memory in the jungle. Quickly and quietly was reclaiming the mines and creeping up on the edge of the town. The captain tugged at the brim of his hat, then rubbed his neck. There is a grouchy old miner who rents out his dugout, but someone put sawdust in the gas tank on his motor last week. I think I know where they got the sawdust, and he said, recalling his misadventure the night before. When they arrived, the bartender had advised them that the bush pilot was in no condition to fly anywhere anytime soon. He pointed to the corner of the bar where a man had been passed out, cheek glued to the table. Indy had been about to rouse him when a ruckus broke out that quickly ended the evening. Now it looked as if they might be stuck in Kana for days, a possibility that didn't appeal to him in the least. His introduction to the town had consisted of fleeing, stampeding pigs, getting walloped by a poker-playing Irish woman, and now losing the one chance to leave. We could always fly back to the capital for a few days, Archie Tan suggested. I have friends there. I can make uh, good business. There are always interesting things coming into Panama. Archie was dressed for the city, not for days on the river, and Indy felt bad for him. He was at home in San Francisco and even Panama City, but small towns like Canada and excursions into the jungle didn't appeal to him. If I go back to Panama City, I might as well go back to... Barnett and cancel my sabbatical, and he said, I'm here, so one way or another, I'm going to find a way to get down that river and follow Kingston's map to the pyramid. The steamer pilot, a French-born Panamanian named Jacques, waved a hand down river. Never seen any pyramids, just jungle. Bad jungle. Thanks for the encouragement. Then Indy saw her. The Irish woman from last night. She's approaching the dock, carrying the same bag that she'd had last night, the one with the lead pipe, and who knows what else inside. Don't tell me that's who hired you, 
She's a photographer for National Geographic, the pilot said, then proudly added, I've seen that magazine. Indy turned to her as she sauntered up. First you clobber me over the head, then you steal my boat out from underneath me. It's not your boat. I hired it ahead of you, the woman said with a smile. You'll just have to wait your turn. She started to board the steamer, then stopped. Sorry about what happened last night, by the way. I didn't mean to thump you. I'm sure there were others more deserving in the crowd. No doubt, she extended a hand. Maggie O'Malley. Jones. Dr. Jones. Indiana Jones. Which is it? Take your pick. This is my associate, Archie Tan of San Francisco. Maggie shook Archie's hand, then turned her attention back to Indy. How are you feeling this morning? He took off his hat, gingerly touched the side of his head. It's a little tender right there. She moved closer, took a look, then probed it with a finger. Ouch, he yelled. Sorry. Maybe if you kissed it, it'd uh, get better faster, Indy suggested. Oh, I don't think that'll help. You just need to take it easy for a couple of days. You should know that, Dr. Jones. I'm not that kind of a doctor, and I don't like taking it easy. At least, not at this place, Indy answered. Archie Tan stepped forward. He's an archaeologist, quite famous, too. We are on an important mission. That's why we need the st steamer very soon, like right now. She laughed. So do I. I have an important mission, too, and I was here first. In spite of his first encounter with Maggie, he liked her spunk and was astonished that she'd apparently come alone to this remote outpost. So you're taking pictures of the local wildlife for a magazine? National Geographic, but not wildlife. I'm going to a Simar village. They're a very interesting tribe, primitive, and they like it that way. Sounds like fun. Girl photographer goes native. Very funny. So, what are you doing here, Jones? Looking for the missing link? Oh, we already found that last night at your poker table. We're looking for a Mayan pyramid. She laughed. And you say you're an archaeologist? Try Mexico or Guatemala, the Mayan. Didn't build any pyramids in the southern Panama, or anywhere in Panama. That's what makes it interesting. One of the things, at least, there is such a pyramid. Has anyone ever actually seen it, or is it a rumor among your colleagues? I've seen it. I've been there. Actually, there are three pyramids, one large, two small. She wasn't laughing now. You know, maybe we can work out a deal. What kind of deal? You come to the Simar village with me, and I'll go with you to visit this pyramid as long as I can photograph it and get exclusive rights to all my photos. Before Andy could respond, Archie stepped forward. That is an excellent idea, much better than waiting here for many days. Wouldn't you agree, Andy? I hope so. It would seem that way. He turned to Maggie. You'd have to understand that it won't be an easy jaunt after we leave the boat. The Darien jungle is unforgiving. I can handle deprivation, and I can deal with danger, Dr. Jones. Sounds like a wonderful opportunity with lots of potential for photojournalist. Yeah, I suppose. However, you would have to agree not to publish any of the photographs until it's time to reveal the discovery to the world. How long will that be? Can't say. We're not the only ones who would like to find this pyramid. Interesting. We can talk about it later. And he smiled. 
I hope we can get along. Just don't call me a bloody girl photographer again, and we'll get along quite fine. I promise not to complain. I'm not afraid of getting wet or dirty, or sleeping in a hammock. He noticed Archie frowning. A moment ago, he was impatient to leave. Now he looked at hesitant. What's wrong? Can we talk in private one minute? He walked over to the far side of the dock, while Maggie climbed aboard with the captain. Do you trust her? Archie asked. She has a German accent. It's not a German accent. She's Irish. That's different, I suppose. Lots of Americans can't tell. Chinese from other Asians. Me? I have the same problem with Europeans. Maybe you need to take a trip to Europe after this jungle journey. Are we ready? Archie looked at the steamer, cleared his throat. Indy, one more thing. I think I'm going to fly back with Captain Rory. He comes back today with supplies for the store. Somehow I'm not surprised. Panama City is more to my liking than the jungle. I did my part for Professor Kingston, and it looks like uh, you are now in good company, if you know what I mean. I get it. The steamer's horn blew and the pilot shop called out, All aboard that's coming aboard, and best come along now or wave goodbye. And he slapped Archie on the back. You done fine, Archie. And show yourself in Panama City. I'll let you know what happens. Good luck and stay alive. I'll try, he said, then hurried across the dock and up the gangplank to the steamer. Maggie was nowhere in sight. What if she was working for the Germans? If that were the case... He would find out soon enough. Eight, up the river. As they rounded a bend a quarter of a mile from the dock, Indy spotted another steamer. Hey, Jacques, you said there weren't any other steamers. What's that? It doesn't count. I don't get along with that man. He's no good, a cheat. I don't tell anyone about his business. Thanks a lot. I suppose someone else would have told me about, about it if, uh, if we'd stayed, Indy said. I'm sure that's true. He has his corrupt friends in Kana, like the one who put sawdust in the dugout motor. But uh, don't act so disappointed, my friend. You're on your way in traveling with a beautiful, mysterious woman. What more can you ask for? How mysterious, he wondered. I haven't seen her since she left. She went below, probably taking a nap. Hmm. Thought we just got up, Indy muttered. Did someone say I'm taking a nap? Maggie stood on the deck, hands on hips. She wore a revealing bathing suit with a towel draped over her shoulder. Indy couldn't take his eyes off her. A striking goddess, he thought. Feminine, curvaceous, yet strong and defiant, all wrapped up in an aura of mystery, a combination that left him mute with wonder. After a few moments of unabashed oogling, he managed to come to his senses. It was as if she'd smacked him over the head again, this time with a different weapon, one that was equally effective in disabling him. Going for a swim already, he managed to say. Don't be silly, Andy. What would I do? Hang from a rope? Like bait for the caimans and the piranha? No, I'm just going to sunbathe. After all, we have two days before we reach the village. With that, she walked toward the bow, spread out the towel, and rolled over on her belly, her beautiful back exposed to the sky. She crossed her arms and rested her head on her forearms. Two days, and he thought, maybe this wasn't going to be such a rugged trip after all, at least not for a while. 
enjoying the pleasures of the moment, Dr. Jones? He'd almost forgotten that he was standing on the bridge with the pilot. Yes, I think so, Jock. Uh, and you can drop the Dr. Jones. It's Indy. While we're enjoying the view, let me remind you about where we are and where, what we're headed into. I'm all yours, Jacques Good. For a time there, I thought you were all eyes, but I can't blame you. Jacques began by explaining that he had arrived in the jungle when he was 14 years old. I came with my father, who was a prospector. He found gold, but decided to use his newfound money to start a transportation business on the river. He bought four steamers. This one and the one we passed are the survivors. I took over for him when he died of a snake bite. Uh, what kind of snakes are out here? Every kind you can imagine, Indy. But watch out for the coral snake, Ferdy Lance, and Bushmaster. Those guys are the deadliest of them all. Just the thought of encountering any kind of snake, much less the deadly three he just mentioned, brought a swell of bile up Indy's throat. Have you seen them yourself? Of course. Just last week when I was fishing, a Ferdy Lance dropped from a tree limb right into my little dugout. I was lucky. I scooped it out with the paddle and tossed it into the river before it could attack. You didn't kill it. The natives say if you kill a snake, three more will come back for you. It's just a story, but I'm, a, I'm not taking any chances. I'll remember that one. Shock went on to say that he'd led hundreds of trips into the Darien and probably knew it as well as anyone. He was full of stories and tidbits of history about the jungle, complete with dates. Indy held off telling Jock that he'd traveled here several years ago. He preferred hearing Jock's stories, but was surprised that he didn't know about the pyramids. The Darien jungle has never taken kindly to outsiders. In 1699, 900 Scottish settlers tried to establish a settlement here. Indians or malaria killed most of them within months. In 1854, an American expedition got so lost and hungry while looking for a canal route that they ate their dead. Jacques explained that the Darien Gap, where they were headed, was 60 miles wide, a labyrinth of rivers, swamps, rainforest, and mountains. Deadly snakes, caimans, crocodiles, biting insects, peccaries, jaguars, and howler monkeys mixed with poachers, loggers, gold diggers, hostile Indians, and bandits. The lust for gold has always drawn people to this jungle, he continued. First the Spanish conquistadors, and others later on, always looking to strike it rich. That lust for the color peaked at the end of the century when 16,000 settlers inhabited Kana. Same thing happened in San Francisco, Indy said, recalling Archie's story about how his grandparents had immigrated during the Great Gold Rush. But as you say, Kana today is barely alive, just an outpost inhabited by pirates and smugglers and a few struggling prospectors. San Francisco was blessed with a much better location, California, on a great bay. Here, it's just jungle and more jungle, and I think it will be this way until it is the last wild place left on Earth. After a few moments, he added, As for your pyramids, yeah, of course, I've heard about them. It's a legend, whispered by the Moqueros, grim robbers. They're always 
looking for a palace of gold, a pipe dream, nothing more. But tell that to the Nazis. Uh, you seen Nazis here, Indy asked. They've come here in the last few months, just like you, looking for pyramids. At first I thought uh, you were one of them. Not hardly, and he stretched his arms. Then go take a stroll. Thanks for the stories. Walked up to the ball, leaned over the railing, and watched the jungle pass by as the tramp steamer chugged along. So far he was enjoying the journey. On his first trip with Kingston, he'd flown in on a seaplane from another jungle outpost and landed on a tributary about a mile from the Temple of the Cosmos and the other two smaller pyramids. He glanced over his shoulder at Maggie, who sat up and stretched her arms overhead. Hope you don't mind a little company. She smiled at him. Do I have any choice? It's a small boat, but uh, not so bloody crowded as I expected. What happened to Archie Tan? He decided he favored Panama City. That's understandable. It's uh, going to get challenging and uncomfortable, I suspect. You almost sound like you're looking forward to it. Have you ever spent time in the jungle? I've put myself at risk in both natural jungles and human ones. I covered the Spanish Civil War in 36. Needless to say, it wasn't easy. I was nearly killed. My camera stopped the bullet. And he saw an opportunity to ask you questions about her thoughts on world politics. The Germans were very interested in what was going on in Spain. Of course, Hitler pressured General Franco to take Madrid and Guadalajara. Hitler saw it as a prequel to an eventual battle between fascism and communism, German, Germany, and Russia. You sound as if uh, you had some dealings with the Germans. Yes, too much, she said in a soft voice but didn't offer any further comment. And he stared back at the jungle, satisfied. We're a long way from Europe, but uh, there's a possibility that some Nazis might also be looking for this pyramid. Oh, really? She sounded bored, unconcerned. But after a few moments added, you did say something about others interested in the pyramid, but you didn't say there were Nazis on your trail, Buster. What's this about? He cleared his throat. I did leave out a few details. He told her what happened in San Francisco. Now you tell me, this is the last place one would expect to see Gestapo. She sounded bored again. Well, chances are they won't find us here. Yeah, it's a big jungle. But Indy felt a tightening knot in his gut that he hadn't seen the last of Magnus Bowler and his buddies. He also felt something else equally disturbing. Maggie wasn't telling him everything she knew. The plane skidded to a stop on the jungle runway and the pilot cut the engine. Six men grabbed their gear and climbed out. Magnus Voller didn't bother thanking the pilot. He'd paid him more than twice his normal fee in order to get him to leave immediately and not wait to lo load any cargo. Once the pilot had confirmed what Voller had been told by his tongue informant that Jones and Tan were heading to Panama. Nothing could stop him from getting here as quickly as possible. Voller had made two previous trips to Kana in the last several months after a portion of Charles Kingston's diary had come into his hands. It was all about Kingston's search for the Staff of Moses, a sacred object that would make a powerful complement to the Third Reich's growing collection of biblical artifacts. 
The Fuhrer, after all, was convinced that the accumulation of sacred artifacts from biblical times would cement the power of the Third Reich to rule the world. Lohler learned that the most important part of Kingston's diary was hidden in the Temple of the Cosmos, but his trips to the temple had proved useless. Reluctantly, he concluded, without the Jade Sphere, he would never find the hidden diary that would provide details on how to locate the Staff of Moses. His search for the Sphere had led him to Architan. He threatened Kingston's friend to no avail and figured the loyal Ch Chinaman would die with this secret. So he decided to trick Tan into giving up the location of the sphere by paying off the uh, Tang gang boss to protect Tan. The results had been less than spectacular. The Tong boss had turned secretive about the sphere's location and only wanted to negotiate details of the payment. Bowler had insisted on proof that Blind Duck possessed the sphere before he would discuss the matter any further. Somehow Waller wasn't surprised when Indiana Jones showed up. Tan hadn't taken any chances and had called Jones as a backup. In spite of their differences, Waller and Jones also had a lot in common. Both had studied in Chicago under the famous pair of archaeologists Kingston and Ravenwood. Waller had excelled at the University of Chicago until his falling out with Kingston that ironically involved the Jade Sphere. Besides that, Kingston and other professors mindlessly denigrated his best work because he speculated on ancient connections of the Germanic race. While Kingston and Ravenwood were obsessed with biblical history, Magnus Voller was single-mindedly focused on establishing the superiority of all things Aryan. Fortunately, his ideas had gotten a much warmer welcome when he returned to his undergraduate alma mater at University of Dresden and finished his studies. Fuller was about to join his men on the short trek to the village when one of them shouted, fired his weapon, and raced towards the jungle. A couple others looked after him. What the hell are they doing, hunting jaguar? We don't have time for this. More likely peccary, the pilot said with a laugh. The place is teeming with those pigs. Then the late afternoon sun illuminated the catch of the day as two of his men walked out of the jungle, dragging Archie Tan between them. What do we have here, Volder shouted. We didn't have to look long for that one. What are you going to do with it to, to him? The pilot nervously stroked his thick mustache. I think he just wants to go back with me. Volder pulled the revolver from his holster and aimed it at the pilot's forehead. You leave now. No questions, just go. The pilot returned to his plane and quickly taxied away. The two Nazis tossed Archie Tan to the ground at Voller's feet. So we meet again, Mr. Tan. Where is your whip-carrying partner? I'm not telling you anything. One of the men kicked Tan in the stomach. Not so rough with our friend, Voller. Pulled Archie to his feet, then slapped him with the back of his hand. You will tell us everything. He grabbed Archie by the throat and squeezed as he lifted him with one hand. Archie gagged, his face turned red. Lower lowered him to the ground, loosened his grip. Where is he? He's gone. You won't find him uh, or the Jade Sphere here. You're coming with us. We're going to look for Dr. Jones, and you will keep us company. 
Maggie strolled through the Samar village, nodding and smiling at a young woman who was busy painting on an image of a thin layer of bark that had been peeled from a tree. The bark art decorated their thatched homes and twice a year was bundled and sold downriver to traders. The steamer had arrived at the village a couple of hours earlier and Jock had introduced them to the chief. Whenever she was among primitive people, she tried to be discreet about taking photos. Unlike many photographers who visited native villages, she remained sensitive to their way of life and didn't act like she was taking family pictures. She would never think of lining people up to pose for group shots. She paused and watched a mother teaching her daughter the intricacies of weaving. Both wore colorful wraparound skirts and white blouses and were adorned with nose rings, as were many of the villagers. When the pair had gotten used to her presence, she began snapping photographs. After a while, Maggie moved on to where a couple of teenage boys in loincloths were butchering a peccary and uh, repeated the same process. After the uneventful journey downriver, she was grateful to get out and move among the villagers with her Brownie 616, a new box camera on the market. It was small, making it easy for travel and wasn't as intrusive as the larger, older cameras. The Severe were peaceful as long as you didn't offend them by violating any of their rules, which basically meant respecting their culture and traditions. She walked over to Indy, who was examining several bark paintings that hung on a line. See anything you like? No but I see a couple that I don't. He pointed his index finger at a painting featuring two undulating snakes and another depicting a swastika. Uh, this one makes me wary. Dr. Jones, I hope you don't think the summer are Nazis or Nazi sympathizers. I really doubt that they know anything about Nazis. Of course not. I'm well aware that the swastika is an ancient symbol is by many Native American tribes. It's a symbol of the four winds that was absconded and exploited by Hitler. Just reminded me that a few real Nazis might be on our trail and the sooner we're on our way, the better. She ran her fingers over the painting, tracing the lines of the swastika. She considered telling him that Nazis had visited this village within the last few months, but decided against it. He wouldn't want to know how she knew that, and she wasn't about to, re to reveal that bit of information to him. Look, I want to spend the night here. Shoot some more in the morning, then we can leave. I figured as much. Better take a walk in the jungle. I saw a path they use. I'll see where it goes. Probably to a garbage dump. Good, that's where we archaeologists find our most important information about cultures, if not their treasures. Yeah, just don't intrude, Maggie said. This culture is still functioning quite well on its own. I'll do my best not to steal any fish bones. She laughed as he walked away. She liked Indy, no doubt about it. And uh, he seemed attracted to her. If they spent much more time together, the sparks would start flying. But she had the feeling he also attracted trouble like nails to a magnet. She would like a few days with the Samir for her photo essay, but it was more important to stick close to Jones. She was convinced he possessed something or knew something that the Nazis wanted. Her real assignment was finding out everything she could about 
what was going on here, and Jones was a means to that end. Patience was not a virtue Indy possessed in any great measure, he thought, as he followed the trail. Yes, the Simar village was picturesque, the natives friendly, and at least willing to allow them to look around and trade some trinkets for a couple of bark paintings. But he wasn't a tu tourist. He was on a mission, an important one. He didn't know if the staff of Moses ever possessed the power attributed to it, much less if it retained them. But uh, he did know from experience that such relics existed. In that sense, he was a believer. Apparently, Kingston was convinced that the staff was imbued with power. And if that was the case, keeping it away from the Nazis was the most important thing he could do right now. He came to a fork in the trail and continued to the left. As he'd expected, it ended a couple hundred feet later in a mound of refuse. Since it was an active dump and one of recent origin, he had no interest in it. But he was surprised to see some scattered, see that scattered among the remains of animal carcasses were some of the trade items they'd received. The Simar apparently had no use for silverware, a corkscrew, or a calendar. You can imagine how they must have puzzled over that pot with all the holes, maybe filling it with water, watching it run out, and laughing. There were also several books, all with black covers, right in that heap. He stepped toward the heap, picked one up, a Bible. Apparently they don't favor the King James edition, he muttered. It suddenly occurred to him that if uh, he dug deeper, he might find the missionary who brought the Bibles. He set, the, set it back down on the edge of the pile, then backtracked to the fork in the trail. He started to follow the other branch, but stopped when he saw a large bark painting hanging from a limb above the trail. The painting featured a vertical line with two cross lines, a blue crescent moon above the double cross, and a star below it. He studied it a moment, then continued on. He'd seen that symbol, but it took a moment for him to remember where. The trail ended in a clearing with a flat circular rock in the center. The same double cross moon star symbol was etched in the middle of the rock. He sat down on the edge of the rock and took out the maps and drawings Kingston had left behind and studied them again. Next to a drawing of the river and the trail leading to the pyramids was the symbol with a note beside it. When you see the star moon double cross symbol, you know you're on the right trail. But this couldn't be the right place. They were still two days away by riverboat, and there was no mention of the Simar. As he refolded the map, he found another note on the back that he'd overlooked. Unless things have changed, the most reliable way to find the Temple of the Cosmos is by riverboat. Skilled seaplane pilots are in short supply in Kano. While following the river downstream, it's best to avoid the Indians. One tribe is particularly troublesome. They are called Simar and appear quite friendly. But don't be fooled by their welcoming demeanor. The chief of one particular village on the river apparently has sampled civilization and didn't like what he found. Be very careful around him and the warriors. I'm not suggesting they will eat you, but it might be on their minds. Indy bolted to his feet, folded up the drawing, stuffed it away. He needed to warn Maggie. As he headed for the trail, he noticed movement in the surrounding jungle. 
An Indian with a painted body and a spear stepped into view, then another and another and another. Dam surrounded. The warriors edged closer, waving their spears at him, shouting, and he moved back toward the center of the opening, nearly tripped over the flat stone. He looked around frantically for an escape route, but didn't see any possibilities. Then he recognized the chief, who stepped forward, slammed the spear into the ground and shouted at him. The chief had spoken Spanish when they had arrived, indicating that he had outside contact. No doubt he was the same fellow that Kingston had encountered. But now he was seething and mixed Spanish with his native tongue. He kept saying, Piedra, Sacrados, something about a sacred stone. Not good, not good at all. Within seconds, it seemed the hint of menace from Kingston's letter had evolved into a full-fledged assault. To show the chief that he meant no harm, Indy carefully slipped off his pack, dropped it on the flat rock, and held up his hands. No guns, no pistolas. He smiled and waved his hands. So you an amigo. But that just angered the chief even more. He pulled his spear out of the ground and jabbed it at Indy. Suddenly he realized that he was standing at a sacred place where rituals were held, probably where sacrifices were made. Of course, the sacred stone. He scooped up his pack again and just as Maggie burst into the circle, gasping for breath, pursued by more warriors. Now they were, now they were both captive and he feared they were about to be sacrificed. Indy, hello, get away from that stone. Didn't you hear the chief? You're not supposed to be here in their sacred circle and definitely not on that stone. She turned to the chief and spoke to him in fluent Spanish. Hindi understood enough to realize she was calling him an idiot, that he didn't know any better, and begged for the chief's forgiveness. The chief spoke gruffly and motioned for them both to leave the circle. His gesture sharp, quick, unambiguous. Hindi didn't waste any time following orders and Maggie was right behind him. I thought that, was, that a, as an archaeologist, you would have some respect and sensitivity for the traditional culture. That's anthropology. In my field, we tend to deal with dead cultures and their artifacts. We're careful diggers, but sometimes not always so careful with the local folks. That's obvious, she replied. Best thing to do is go right to the steamer and leave. Oops, sorry about that. It's okay, I got quite a nice selection of photos. I'd like to stay and take more, but that's out of the question now. Maybe on our way back, Andy's words trailed off. He knew there was no coming back here. We need to give them something and go. Maggie spoke brusquely and picked up the pace. Yeah, just don't give them corkscrews, calendars, or Bibles. I wouldn't think of it. How about your whip? I don't think that's a good idea either. They might uh, put it to use, but I do have an extra knife. Good, and I've got candy for the kids. When they reached the village, they found Jock tied to a pole with a couple of men guarding him. What did you do, Jones? He bellowed. His face wet with perspiration, his eyes terrified, wide as plates. I've never had trouble with these people. Maggie conferred with the chief, who quickly ordered the boat pilot released. They were holding you for trade with another tribe that likes to eat their captives, she said. They don't want you bringing any more idiots here. Jacques rubbed his arms, glared at Indy. 
I'll remember that. I don't appreciate being tied up in my own rope. I traded it for a dozen bark paintings last year. A while later, they were traveling down the river again. Jacques had already warned them that they'd soon be entering rough waters, and they wouldn't be able to stop for the night until they reached a tributary where the water was calmer. Indy stood near the stern with Maggie, taking in the scenery, trying to relax and enjoy the tranquil ride while it lasted. He was keeping his distance from Jacques, who was still upset with him for almost getting them killed. India tried talking to him, apologizing, but to no avail. Jock's only comment was that he wished he'd taken Maggie by herself as originally planned. For his part, Indy was feeling contrite and apologetic toward Maggie. Sorry again about what happened back there. I usually handle myself better than that. I can just imagine, Maggie said. Believe it or not, uh, sometimes diplomacy works better than a whip and a gun. What? Are you implying that I might have gotten aggressive? And he looked at her with mock surprise. To his astonishment, she slid her hands around his waist. Oh, I think you've got it in you. Hmm, uh, maybe he should be apologetic more often. He moved closer to her, lightly embracing her, inhaling her intoxicating scent. His lips brushed against hers. Really? You think so? She dropped her head back. Yeah, I'm sure you could have uh, put up a good fight and gotten us all killed. Before he could respond, her eyes flickered to a point just over his shoulder and widened. Uh, you might just have another chance to put your talents to use, Indiana Jones. We've got company. He turned to see a steamer, belching black smoke, chugging up behind them. He hurried over to the bridge, worn shocks, then snatched a pair of binoculars hanging on a rack where he and Maggie had hooked their packs. He focused on the approaching vessel and spotted a tall blonde also peering through binoculars. Unmistakably, Magnus Bowler. Trouble was catching up to them. Nine, uncharted territory. I can't outrun him, Jock shouted. That's my enemy back there. He'll be glad to sink us so he can steal my business. Yeah, and he's working for my enemy. Guess that makes us allies again. And he put the monoculars away. No need for them any longer. The steamer was already close enough to see the deck clearly. What are we going to do, Maggie asked. Better get below, and he said. It could get nasty up here. And miss all the action? No thanks, Jones. They'll cut you set the next bend when I have to slow down, Chop said. As the steamer pulled within a boat length of them, armed Gestapo agents took up positions on the deck. Eddie moved to the railing, scanned the steamer, but didn't see Voler. Magnus, what do you want? Indy shouted. Voler suddenly reappeared, climbing onto the hold, and Indy groaned as Voler dragged Archie Tan into view. Hello, Jonesy. Look who's here. You want your friend to join you? Let him go, Voler, Indy said as the steamers churned closer and closer together. Let's make a trade. You give me the Jade Sphere, I'll give you Archie. Fair enough? Not really. But I've got a compromise. He glanced back at Maggie, who remained on the bridge with shocks, hoping she would be impressed with his attempt to avoid violence. You turn over Archie, and I'll tell you where to find an Indian village not far away. 
that has some hidden treasures underneath a large flat rock. Bola responded by snapping orders for his men to cross over as the two steamers edged closer and closer. I'll take that as a no, Andy said, and slugged the first Gestapo agent to step across the deck. His head snapped back, then he smiled and kept coming. He grabbed Indy by the collar, was about to slam his fist into Indy's face when the steamer hit white water. The deck shot up, dropped down, then bucked upward again. The Gestapo agent lost his grip on Indy, and both men stumbled several steps one way, then lurched another way in a drunken dance across the deck. A second agent, who had crossed over, followed them, doing the same drunken dance. Finally, Indy grabbed the railing. The first Nazi rushed him, took a swing, but Indy ducked just as the steamer plunged down again and the German catapulted feet first over the side. Oh, that was easy, Indy grinned, then immediately was tackled by the other Nazi. They crashed to the deck, accompanied by a thunderous cracking as the two aged steamers collided. Indy and the Gestapo agent rolled over several times one way and tumbled in the other direction, locked in an unholy embrace. Indy broke away, got to his feet, but fell backwards as the steamers collided again. The Nazi on his knees aimed a gun from a yard away. Behind you, Voller yelled from somewhere in the background. The agent turned just as Maggie slammed her lead pipe against his head. His knees buckled, he keeled over, and Indy hauled himself upward again, the boat swaying and bucking and dancing beneath him. He nodded to Maggie. Thanks, I know exactly how that feels. Say goodbye to Archie Magnus, Voller hollered. He crossed over, still holding Archie Tan as a hostage, one arm hooked around Tan's neck, the other hand gripping a gun depressed against Archie's temple. We're taking on water, Jock shouted. Hear that? You're going down, Jones. Last chance. Get me the jade stone now where Tan is dead. Don't give it to him, Indy, Archie gasped, struggling to break through the chokehold. You need the stone. The ships collided again, accompanied this time by a horrendous screech of tearing metal. Indy tumbled across the deck, head over heels, and ended up on his hands and knees just as Boulder's gun slid past him. He crawled over towards it, reached, and his fingertips grazed the barrel just as Boulder snatched it off the deck. Get the jade sphere now. Indy stood unsteadily, hands held high. He couldn't see Maggie or Archie. Then both of them screamed in unison, and Jock shouted, Watch out! And he turned just in time to see the river drop straight down as both steamers plunged simultaneously over the waterfall. Indy slid forward toward the bridge as the steamer nosedived. He managed to snag onto his hanging backpack, then Maggie's pack with the other hand. His legs dangled in midair for a couple of seconds, then the steamers crashed together at the bottom of the falls, spilling passengers and cargoes as tons of foaming water swamped the deck. One moment Indy was on the deck, the next he was tumbling over and over through the tumultuous waters. He popped to the surface, bobbed in the turbid trigger shop, struggling to hold on to the packs. The turbulence carried him away. He fought to stay afloat as the choppy waters washed over him, spinning him in circles. He went under, popped up, sank back down again. When he bobbed up to the surface again, he gasped for air. He had flipped onto his back and now managed to raise his head. For an instant, he saw that the doomed steamers had keeled over at the bottom of the waterfall. Chuck's vessel made lazy circles in the foaming water. The other steamer just had jammed 
in the shallows near the far shore. He looked around as best he could, but couldn't see anyone else, friend or foe. He struggled to escape the rapids and finally worked his way into gentler waters and toward shore. But even in waist-high water, the current knocked him over. He crawled the last a few yards, dropped it onto a sandy patch of shore, and released the two backpacks. You made it. You've got my pack, Maggie said, sitting down next to him. She looked as if she'd just gone for a casual swim. You're a good fellow in a pinch, Indy. That's good to know, thanks. How did you get here so fast? I got tossed from the steamer when it was about halfway over the falls. The next thing I knew, I was being carried downstream, then into shallow waters. I saw you out in the rapids and followed you as best I could. Indy heard shouts and saw Archie and Jacques drifting downstream and a few yards apart as they struggled to reach shore. Indy leaped up and ran towards Jacques, who clutched a pack he'd managed to salvage. A few minutes later, the four of them were resting on shore. There was no sign of Magnus Voller or his colleagues. Sorry about your boat, Indy said to Jacques. I'm alive, that's what's important. The steamer pilot seemed in a surprisingly upbeat mood. Now I can get out of this jungle and do something else with my life. You get out of the jungle now, Archie said. I go with you. No offense, Indy. Any idea where we are, Indy asked. We were supposed to turn on a tributary before the water got too rough, and definitely well before the waterfall. But we were under attack and I couldn't navigate. Maggie, who had wandered down the shoreline, suddenly called out to them. Hey, look at this. What is it? Indy asked, joining her. We're definitely not the first ones here. Indy stepped closer to an old mahogany tree. Carved in the trunk was a double cross with a crescent moon above, a star below. That symbol was on Kingston's map, marking the trailhead. But I thought we had another day or two to get there, Maggie said. It can't be the same trailhead. No, but it could lead to the same place, Jacques said. We took a shortcut when we went over the waterfall. The tributary winds about for miles before it gets to the mark on the map. I saw the same symbol back in the Simar village on that sacred rock, Indy said. I wished I'd had a chance to ask the chief about it and what he knew about the pyramids. I asked about the pyramids, Maggie said. He said it's where the ghost people live, a dangerous place. I wonder why they use the same symbol. I've seen it many times by other tribes, Jacques said. It's used for protection. You mean we're protected on this path? Archie asked, hopefully. No. The ones who put it there are protected against us or any other enemies. Speaking of, Indy glimpsed movement on the far side of the river and spotted Voler and the survivors of his team. One of the men was pointing at them. Let's hit the trail before our friends get over here. Good idea, Maggie said. They're going to have a tough time crossing with that current, but let's not wait around to see how they do. Hold on, Archie said. What are we going to eat? How are we going to get out? Let's be practical. Don't worry about food, Jacques said. I know the jungle, and I have my gun. I know fire when it dries. Actually, I think we might have a way out, Archie said. When I was captive, Voler talked to the drunken bush pilot. He's out of money for his booze, and he agreed to fly in and pick up Voler. If we can find him first, we just pay more money, and he'll take us out. Don't count on that guy, Jacques said. In my experience, McNulty doesn't keep me very many promises. 
We don't have any choice, Archie said. I do want to get out of this jungle. First, we've got to find the pyramid, Indy said, consulting his compass. They watched for more trees with a double cross and crescent moon and found them every few hundred feet. I'm surprised this trail is so clear, Maggie said. It could be an animal trail, Chuck said. The peccary will keep a trail open. Speaking of the trail, there's one other thing, Indy said. Kingston's letter mentioned that we might encounter a few ancient Mayan booby traps along the way. Well, maybe more than a few. But probably not on this trail, Archie said. Don't count on that, Indy, replied. Maggie hesitated in her tracks. Kingston told you what to look for, I assume. Uh, not really. I think we're on our own in that regard. He didn't provide any specifics. Archie waved a hat. I wouldn't worry about it, especially if they are ancient. Everything would be rotted and destroyed by now. He no sooner spoken when Indy motioned everyone to stop. He pointed to a cross-moon symbol on a tree and then the trail in front of them. What is it? Aggie asked. Jock reached down and pulled the intertwined vines aside, revealing a hole with sharpened sticks at the bottom. The jungle might have covered the hole on its own, but there are descendants of the ancients here, the ghost people who are keeping up tradition and the traps. Have you ever seen them, Indy asked? Jock shook his head, Ashley. Until now, I never believed they existed. Ghost people, pyramids, nothing but stories. Now it looks like they're both real. Nearby, the underbrush rustled, and Indy reached immediately for his whip. Jacques raised his gun. They waited for whatever it was to emerge. A brilliant purple feather fluttered to the ground. Oh, it's just a bird feather, Archie said. I don't think so, Jacques said. It's another warning. Trouble ahead, if we continue. Maybe so. Indy looked back, remembering they weren't the only ones who survived the waterfall, and trouble behind if we go back. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Mystical.